I can't listen to any more of this. What's the matter with you people? How can you sit here and talk and talk and talk like this? TGIF, it's Manson Mitchell with Gary Manson, Suzanne Mitchell. A double shot of good conversation with great guests to jumpstart your weekend. Manson Mitchell, you're on the air. Thank you, Eric Kramer. Hi, everybody. I'm Gary Mans. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. Together, we are Manson Mitchell in your ears for the hour of a Friday. And that means when it's Friday, we're talking about bad boy Benny Mathers at the board. Our producer, Benny, how are you, sir? <laughs> you are correct, sir. <laughs> okay. So we got Ed McMahon out of the way. Maybe uh, Jacob can channel him later on. <laughs> right. Yes, yes, indeed. Ed McMahon, Benny. That Thank you. Very <laughs> By the way, uh, most people don't know this, but Ed McMahon was one tough cookie. He was the second banana to Johnny Carson, which would take a certain amount of fortitude to do that for so long. But Ed McMahon trained pilots in the Marines back before we had the Air Force, per se, in World War II. He was a tough customer. And uh, you look at Ed McMahon as as this uh, amiable man, always ready with a laugh. He went through a lot of stuff in World War II, and I just, I always liked him okay, but I didn't have deep respect for him. But now, in retrospect, I certainly see why people should. There was a big comparison. I mean, he was like, what, 6'3"? He was a pretty tall, gentle uh, gentle fellow, I should say. And then, of course, little little Johnny over there. You know, So it was a good well, kind of like yeah, height difference. Exactly. And someone else from that era, whom you wouldn't necessarily expect it from, was a drill instructor in the Marine Corps. And I believe there was a time when he left it and then came back to do more drill instructing there because he was so good at it. And that person went on to sound like this. 99, I believe that we have our man. Or sorry about that, chief. There, Don Adams. There, he was a Marine Corps drill instructor in wartime. I mean, that's the best. You never know about these guys, you know. Uh, so we In this generation, and I'm a baby boomer, our guest today, Jacob Cooper, is, is much younger than us. There, I think we all have it too soft, and there's too damn many participation trophies. There, somebody had to say Uh-oh. it. Uh-oh. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> I say it, though I don't necessarily yeah. believe it, but you hear a lot of talk that way. So <laughs> things can be uh, generational, and sometimes it leads to conflict, certainly to a variety of perspectives. And the perspective of Jacob Cooper is somebody that we are looking forward to hearing once again today because he's got a new book out. And you, Suzanne, fell in love with him reading this book. I did all over again. The book is called The Wisdom of Jacob's Ladder. Uh, We read it cover to cover, and there were parts of it that just absolutely grabbed me. And I said, ooh, ooh, we have to talk to him about that. So the whole book is good. We're not going to cover the entire book. We're going to cover a few things today that I found particularly compelling and said in a way that I had not heard them said, you know, read them said uh, that way. So I am very eager to talk to this gentleman. We we talked to him um, a couple of years ago when he had his book, uh, Life After Breath. Mm-hmm. And so this is now another book that we have gotten from him, a little bit more autobiographical and quite interesting. And so I am eager to uh, revisit with him. Why don't you give him his mad props and we'll bring him on. We will get this rolling. 
Passionate about promoting healing, Jacob L. Cooper, best-selling author of Life After Breath, is a sought-after speaker on grief, wisdom, and consciousness, offering inspiring seminars to help others find purpose and increased higher awareness. As a clinical social worker, Reiki master, certified hypnotherapist, and author specializing in past life regression, Jacob uses his extensive personal and professional experience to empower one soul at a time. Welcome once again, Jacob Cooper. Glad to have you with us. Always good to be returning back to, to you guys and your show. And always an honor. Thank you. Yep. Happy to have you here. I told you just as we were coming on air what it was that I wanted to talk about today. We're just going to go ahead and dive into it. I mean, we're not going to talk about the weather where you are or the weather where we are or any <laughs> of that kind of stuff. I just want to get right into the book for the time sure. that we have in this hour. And uh, in particular, um, I think just to refresh people or lay a tiny little background if you could tell the story briefly about what happened to you when you were three years old, and we'll kind of take it from there. Yes, so September of 1993, I had whooping cough, and I went to a playground, and I suffocated as a result of whooping cough. And so I lost the breath of my body, and I was suffering in that moment, but I surrendered to this new breath, this this other breath within myself. It, I refer to it as the breath of eternity. And so even if the breath of the body leaves us, we have this eternal breath that's all inside of us. And, you know, I had this profound NDE at a very young age in which I crossed over and was aware of, you know, the dwelling of my soul in my home and its inhabitants. And I was able to become aware of my spirit guides, you know, angels, you know, God, soul family members, life purpose, you know, past lives. Um, you know, and, and then some. So it was a profound experience that changed the trajectory of my life. But I know the experience goes more than just me. And that's why I wrote my books is to be just a gentle chap, tap on the shoulder of others to remind themselves that they are a lot more than what they see themselves as. And this experience really refreshed and reminded me of that understanding. Now, this happened to you when you were three years old, and and tell me if I have this correctly, even though you had the experience at three, it took you many years to process that experience and to um, really like figure it out or resolve it for yourself. Do I have that right? Yes, which is very congruent of near-death experiencers in general. Uh, but particularly NDE children and infants. People have near-death experiences, children and infants. Uh, but a cool story was I found out this past year, um, I, me and my family, we don't really talk about it all that much. I kind of kept it to myself. But my father told me that shortly after my NDE, I told him, you know, Dad, when I was rushed by the ambulance to the hospital, you know, something happened that day. Um, it's not going to make sense to you right now, but one day it will. And I'm just kind of paraphrasing. So... Um, I'll take credit for it, but yeah, you know, I didn't have the vocab or the readiness, you know, at that age to talk about it like I do now. Excellent. I think one of the great things about you and others who pursue a similar path, Jacob, is that it's admirable in my eyes for you to be willing to follow this path. There are, I'm sure, untold numbers of people who have 
some of what you possess. They have some ability. They've had mediumistic experiences, as they are sometimes called, but they don't know what to do with them. And so they live rather in a state of confusion. But you took the initiative in trying to put it all together in a cogent way so that you could understand yourself and life better. And then you took it to the professional level. That's what I think is very admirable about you. Yeah, I think there's two different types of people. And I think sometimes we vacillate between the two. But there's givers and takers. And we could have experiences that just seek to give over to others, or we could just seek on to have his experience and hold them to themselves. But I think a lot of people are unhappy because they're takers and they're looking for life to bend their way instead of, you know, giving over to others. I think that's when we really find our happiness is when we give over to others and make a ripple effect a difference. Very good. Um, in in wanting to kind of uh, like start at a place that makes sense, one of the things very early on that I read in your book, in fact, it's on page six, that's how early on it is. <laughs> You talk about when we are very small children, how it is that we are trained to think of ourselves. So when there is a small child, how is it that, you know, culturally and by family that we are told how, how to think of ourselves and how not to think of ourselves? Yeah. I mean, from day one, we're given a name, we're given a gender, we're at a certain point given a culture and religion. And so the issue is is kind of like this egoic structure where we have all these labels and identification of who we are in this life as synonymous with who we are deep within. And so the problem is with that is all these things within this life are things that we are experiencing. Um you know, but they're not the full totality or the full picture of who we are. You know, they might be different themes of a particular chapter, but beyond that chapter is an entire encyclopedia of different journeys with lifetime ins and lifetimes out. So, you know, I, I, for instance, when I had my NDE, I was, you know, a lot of the stuff that I was experiencing had very little to do with my three-year-old self. And a lot of NDEers experienced that too where your pre-life, you know, and post-NDE, you know, aren't in congruency many times, you know, your, your beliefs, all that stuff, you know, isn't always in alignment with what you experience on the other side. Jacob, let me ask you a question. I'm smiling here as I'm thinking of it because it just occurred to me. I've never asked this of a medium before, and we know plenty of them. So uh, here's Jacob, hopefully with the definitive answer, no pressure <laughs> there, but what I would like to know, Jacob, is, and you're a professional in sure. several areas, you know, and past life regression is a specialty of yours. You talk about your NDE. I have met many people who claim to have had them. When it comes to the near-death experience, what are the elements of an NDE that would serve as proof or validation of the experience as opposed to somebody having the proverbial close brush with death. It seems to me there's a qualitative difference there. Yes. Um, well, what I would say in the, you know, for instance, within the, the material reduction belief system, that is, you know, the body and the brain produce this life. And so when the body and the brain 
are not functioning, you know, how do you explain this other awareness? You know, so at least for myself, when I had my body shutting down in my brain, which was deprived of oxygen, it wasn't functioning. I had this whole other awareness in my higher mind, you know, so where does that come from? Where does that start? You know, at the very least, you should have very little degrees of awareness or, or thought process when you're compromised. And so this really, you know, aligns with, you know, for instance, hallucinogenics, like your brainwave activities go down usually, but your awareness of things, you know, it could be incredibly high. So there's a whole dichotomy of the brain and the mind. And, you know, material, you know, reductionism, you know, says the brain is the mind, really, that without the brain, there is no mind. Uh, but NDEs really push, push the two into separate categories that we have this brain, but that's really just a filter of life. It's not the producer of it. It stores our experiences, our memories, filters out, you know, our past experience in this life, but beyond the brain, there's, there's a higher mind. Um, but there's tons of anecdotal, you know, stories that I know we've referenced in the past that, you know, give a lot of, you know, clues that there's just so much more than just this body and this reality that, that would not be possible, you know, without uh, having some other part of us beyond this body. That's so well stated there. It really is, Jacob. I, I think about people who have these experiences, for example, I mean, you could, you could, there's so much literature out about it over the last uh, 40 years or so, mm -hmm. but people who've undergone surgery, they're not doctors, they're not nurses, maybe they're an accountant somewhere in Burbank, California, or wherever it might be. And they'll have an experience where they're on the table, their heart stops beating, they feel that their essence, their soul, if you will, mm -hmm. rises above their body and becomes an observing entity, a witness to an attempt to save this body's life, this person's life. And they will describe people pulling away uh, blankets that were you know, covering uh, portions of the body. They're all the things you would do in arranging for surgery. They pull it back and they get this instrument and that instrument, the likes of which the patient has never seen, knows nothing about right. it, but he or she can talk about what it looked like, where they applied it, and even the conversation going on between the doctors and the nurses as they were doing this. But technically, they're dead. They're flatlining. And right. I always ask the skeptics, <laughs> well, how would they know about something of which they have no prior knowledge, no conception of this, and yet they're describing it in great detail, confirmed by the people who are operating on the patient? Yeah. I mean, if that patient was fully awake and had all their faculties working, they still wouldn't know the stuff that, they, you know, that comes out. So the fact that they're still incredibly compromised or flatlined and still know what's going on you know, it just boggles the mind. I mean, I know you've had, you know, guests on the show before. I think we discussed this last time with, I guess, like the tennis shoe thing, right? They were, you know, able to just get out of their body and they saw on the rooftop that there was a tennis shoe or something like that on top of the roof. I mean, what was she like in a helicopter during her procedure or something like that? Like, how would she know that? You know, yeah. it's just, you know, this stuff you just can't explain, um, you know, through through that particular lens. So I think we're getting at a point you know, where, you know, that that type of perspective is almost put into a corner where they're, they have no answers, you know, to why this phenomenon occurs. And it has to be an evolving process where eventually, 
you know, there was a point where we looked at the world as flat, and then that was our worldview. But through daring exploration and challenging a worldview, um, I, for hopefully the majority of us, we found that wasn't the case. And I think the same thing with, with others' worldviews. Sometimes you have to be flexible and open to enough evidence to alter, you know, the way we see life as. The way we see life. You gave me a really different perspective on something that is quite important. And what you what you wrote in the book is, I disagree with the outlook of seeing children as blank canvases. This is the furthest from truth as children are fully aware of their multidimensional being and intelligence more so than adults who become trapped within their earthly conditioning. And I have to tell you, Jacob, I have viewed children as blank canvases. That child just needs to be filled up. They don't know anything. They, they have no perspective. They have no idea. We have to show them, teach them everything. And when I read what you wrote about that, and there's a, a more to it than what I just read, I was really given a new idea in my own mind. And some of that comes from the fact that as a newborn, this is not their first life. No, no. And you know what? How do we expect to evolve society if we keep on recycling what we were given in the past? I think the past has a, has a value. But to have any degree of change, I think we need to be open you know, to, to people stepping into their own power and being themselves. Each person has a unique element to add. You know, the issue becomes, though, is many are just these leaves and waters of society, you know, and conditioning instead of these forces that generate their own current. Uh, where would we be today without agents of change who decided to go against the grain and step into something deeper within and how and look at the world today and how much that changed the world? So kids don't, you know, I think all of us, we are on this earth, but we're not of this earth, you know, and kids particularly. You know, everyone wants to talk to their loved ones in heaven, but kids are literally your loved ones just coming from heaven, and they have a lot of wisdom and clarity and understanding. So I think they need to be heard and listened to rather than just spoken to, um, you know, and looked at through the deep lens of the soul. They They have lived lives before this one, and that has been proven that oh sure that that children have lived other lives so they come in as this new person and we have heard multiple times that a, a child will remember other lives especially when they're very very young because it hasn't been trained out of them yet and absolutely we yeah. conducted our own family experiment on that by asking a two-year-old what was her name before she was this person. And she <laughs> told us her name. Wow. Wow. And wow. and so it's like, yes, there is reincarnation. Yes, she has come in with some intelligence from prior lives. And so I like when you say instead of like constantly trying to 
paint something on that canvas, try to fill up this empty vessel, ask questions, talk to these little ones, especially when they are now able to talk. And that comes in somewhere around between two and three years old. Mm-hmm. Ask them questions. These little kids, they see angels. They see deceased relatives. They see their guides. They see things and and we say no 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 you don't have a pre- invisible friend you know stop stop <laughs> pretending that's, that's right and they're seeing all that stuff that's right and just imagine how differently the world would be you know if we allowed that development to continue um but it's it's about balance you know you see when i was a kid and i had my nde i loved that world but i recognized the world around me wasn't like that so i just almost had to just bog this stuff down to fit in now, if the rest of the world was like me, like, you know, in a way, then we would have a closer degree of proximity to heaven on earth, in a way. And to me, heaven on earth is more people remembering who they are, where they came from, where they're headed. The issue is when people start identifying with themselves and their communities and all this stuff, it becomes a very, it could become a very fragmented world. Um, so I believe we there is a oneness that we have, but doesn't necessarily mean that that means sameness. You know, each person has something unique to offer to their greater collective whole. And when it comes to the experience of a near-death experience, you know, it, it, it's really kind of uh, heart-wrenching in a way. Maybe you experienced a touch of this, Jacob. If so, please do tell, but I'll bet you've met any number of people because you do past life regressions mm-hmm. and you're a psychic medium as well of growing reputation, I might add, quite the hot ticket anymore, Jacob Cooper. That when you talk to people about this, I have heard and read that some people, when they come back from a near-death experience, are depressed for a while because, and I'm borrowing from an old Carol King song here, they've been to Canaan and they want to go back again. It's a good song. Yeah. 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 And so what about that? I mean, you come back into your body, no, it's not your time. And you know, if I'd had an experience like that, maybe my first question would be why I'm over here where things look peachy compared to what, look at my body after this car wreck or whatever the heck it would be. So I know. I'm feeling down because I've been to Canaan. I want to get back there to that place of unconditional love. Uh, It's very common, you know, for people to to feel that way or to feel more comfortable over there than in here. Uh, But I think it's a matter of trust. And by say trust is trust that, you know, heaven or the other side will always, you know, be there. But this unique opportunity of having this near-death experience you know, is is profound in the changes that could make over here, you know. So I think in a way it's it's comfortable for most of us to be over there, but we're here for reasons. We're here to make changes. We're here, you know, to elevate and evolve the world around us. And so that is, you know, I know you asked for like ways to bring heaven on earth. You know, it's it's to make more symmetry between the two. And it doesn't mean the outside events, you know, are are easy because they're not but it does mean that we could generate the hope and the faith and the knowing past some of those events and ascribe to something that you know will last beyond it and i would tell you having a near-death experience i still have those same human emotions 
but I'm able to have a little bit more resiliency in the fact that I'm able to discern impermanence from permanence. You know, pain, turmoil, you know, all these things are human things, but they come and go. The love, the change, the experiences that we cultivate here are eternal. And so that's the channel that I try to ascribe to and teach myself and to remind ourselves that this is all very real, but at the end of the day, you know, it doesn't last. It's 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 temporary. And I think if more people had that, we would have a different sense of value systems as to what we want to place our energy in. Is it minute to minute stuff that it will go far ahead to, to get ahead while others go down or are, are we become a brothers and sisters keeper responsible for others in a way and trying to make the lives of others around us better? You know, that's that's a difference. Is it me or the we? You know, that's the key. <laughs> Very good. You want to go ahead and take our break Let's now? go ahead and take our break because I want to get into uh, a more involved conversation on the other side about family, mm-hmm. our biological families and our soul families. Jacob Cooper has a lot to say about that. All very, very fascinating. In a fascinating book called The Wisdom of Jacob's Ladder. He doesn't have one of those long subtitles. That's very popular with authors. You know, they've got, there's more words in the title than the title. (laughs) So uh, we will explain to you what this means. This is bold. The wisdom of Jacob's ladder pulling on a biblical myth and legend that contains a wisdom kind of uh, lesson about uh, this is the Bible as literature, spelling out with archetypes and personages that are bigger than life who show us how we can better live our own lives individually. The Wisdom of Jacob's Ladder. Jacob Cooper is our honored guest of this hour. Give us a couple of minutes and we'll be back with more questions. And Jacob, I'm sure, will have more answers to share with us all. We are Manson Mitchell, and you are attuned to the epicenter of Alternative Talk in Seattle, AM 1150. Hi, everybody. This is Anson Williams from Happy Days, and I'm so excited to tell you about American Road. It is the best car travel magazine in the world. They have the most fantastic adventures detailed in each magazine with all your itinerary. We could just jump in the car with your family and have the most fabulous adventures you've ever had in your life. Please get a copy of American Road and start your own adventure. Staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to manceandmitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. Friend Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Mance and Mitchell show page at facebook.com slash Mitchell. If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance Mitchell. Join Gary and Suzanne Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for an unusual show that covers everything from personal growth to the paranormal. Here's an amazing act. Here's a tremendous act. Here's a startling act. The amazing, the thrilling, the greatest, spectacular, incredible, exciting, wonderful, world-famed, most unusual novelty act. The home of the A-Team of Alternative Talk is manceandmitchell.com. Heard right here on Alternative Talk 1150 AM or streaming live from your computer anywhere. Terry Loving wants to help you with your online marketing challenges right now. She has several courses she is giving away to help you get your business working for you online. Yes, giving away. WordPress websites are her specialty, yet her technical skills go way beyond that. Check out her blog at terryloving.com or email her directly at terry at terryloving.com. That's terry at terryloving.com. 
On Friday, Manson Mitchell welcomed Jacob Cooper, psychic medium, to share insights from his book, The Wisdom of Jacob's Ladder. On Saturday, Susan Harmon returns with stories from her fascinating life of growing up outside the United States, becoming a stone whisperer, and experiencing a life-changing move to Arizona. Bringing you mastery and mystery since 2007. We are Manson Mitchell, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on Alternative Talk, AM 1150. No other station delivers this much variety. Alternative Talk 1150. Welcome back to Manson Mitchell and our guest this hour, Jacob Cooper, who has written a couple of books. The one that we just finished reading this week was The Wisdom of Jacob's Ladder. We are talking about that this hour. But before we get back into the interview, Jacob, if people would like to find this book or the other book that we read of yours, um, or website, or any information about you, where is the best place for them to do that? What kind of connections can you make with the public? Yeah, The light, uh, the Wisdom of Jacob's Ladder and Life After Breath are both available on Amazon. And you know, if you have any questions or you'd like to reach me, my website is jacoblcooper.com. That's jacoblcooper.com. Okay. I guess Jacob Cooper is just enough of a common name that you have to put the L in there. <laughs> I wanted jacobcooper.com, but yeah, no, unfortunately it wasn't there. So yeah. L is my middle name, which okay. translates to heart in Hebrew. Oh, uh, it, the, the name is is Lieb or Leib, and it translates to heart. And uh, that's like where that. I live my life from. It's from the heart. Uh, I like that. And, and talking about family names, the most compelling information in the wisdom of Jacob's Ladder, for me personally, had to do with the things that you were saying about families. We touched on it a little bit before the break when we were saying that as a child comes into this earthly life, that they may have had other lives before. And so they don't come in like a blank canvas. They come in with some intelligence and, and some background. And some people are able to allow that to grow. Not all that often, I don't think, but allow those uh, invisible friends and angels and guides to be part of their life. And with the idea that other lives have been lived, it really puts the whole question of family up on the table. And it seems to me there are two kinds of families. One is your your biological family, and the other is your soul family. And they can be one and the same. They can be different. But talk a little bit about the different roles of family members. Yeah. Well, to preface, it's hard because we use the term, and I use the term soul family, but the the issue is 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 the umbrella of soul family. I think we all are a part of a soul family here, each and every one of the ha- inhabitants on earth and those and the satellites in the heavens. But for practicality state, there's a nuclear soul family which each individual you know has. you know, and to me, you know part of being a part of someone's soul family versus biological family, is a deep tie that really goes beyond, you know, this life. You know, some people in our soul family, you know, could elevate us in this lifetime. Others could be challenged. 
but but either way it's this deep tie of different actors and actresses that have been on this stage in this reenactment you know in different roles and different plays you know but all the same kind of players just maybe just different roles um so i i think it's there there is a difference because not everyone within your biological family is you know of your soul family more times than not the majority i believe is when you think of the billions of people on the planet and for you to be in that you know bio family you know there has to be something more than just random coincidence you know or just you know biology but i think on a to me there's le different levels of soul family but the one that i like the most is you know the ones that that you really don't have to explain yourself to the ones that understand you the ones that see the real you and allow you space to 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 be that that to me is so is, is true soul family unconditional love and support and understanding i'm gonna read a paragraph from your book on page 41 i learned about the role of past lives in my near-death experience and how they can blur lines within family and interpersonal relationships without recognizing it at times people find a particular degree of adjustment to parents, children, and others in their family roles. Sometimes a power struggle happens when one sibling tries to parent another or a child tries to parent a parent. And I was thinking about this little baby that is coming into the world Maybe it's two years old, three years old, it's had other lives, and it is in the role of the baby to a mother and father, where in another life, and in it, they might have been the parent. That, and that, and, that and so be. when you talk about the adjustments that families need to make with other family members. I, I said to myself, is part of that adjustment the fact that you have had other lives together and you had other roles? Yeah, it, it's interesting because it's like, what came first, the chicken or the egg? And the example that I give is as a therapist, you know, I often see kids with something called oppositional defiant disorder. Uh, but that's, you know, something that could be consistent. But when it's like, defiant just against like the one parent you know and it's no one else it's something to explore I mean there's no like explanation for it you just have to kind of wonder what is the point of origin behind this behavior what's the reasoning as to why you know my child is this and so there's a lot of comorbidity you know with defiant behavior I know kids with attention ADHD often have it or you know people on the spectrum could also have comorbid you know defiant tendencies but but kids in general and particularly when it's stronger you just kind of wonder is this kid maybe they're not able to understand or express themselves but the kid have a degree of recollection where all of a sudden now they're being asked to be a kid but in their minds they see themselves as the parent or the adult or they're getting used to now just being a kid and getting used to this body and having the world see them as that way but they know in reality that they are not that and so it's a struggle within to accept something that is true here, but is not true in the relative deep with, you know, deep down within, you know, the soul. 
So it, it's true in this lifetime, right. but it's not true over an eternity. Right. And, right. and I, I have said before that I don't have any biological children, hmm. but I do feel as though I raised my mother and I feel as though I, I raised my brother. I, I, I feel as though I have served in that parent role mm. on more than one occasion and was making the decisions and was leading the people and was, you know, doing the things a parent would do. And I think by the time I got to child producing years, I said, oh, I've had enough. I've already <sighs> done that. You've exhausted and, it. Yeah. And and so, okay, I, now I want to go be a kid. I want to just have my life for me because I felt like I had had those responsibilities at an early age. When I read your book, I said, could that have been true? Could it have been in another lifetime that I, I parented some of these people and, and that kind of bled over into this lifetime? And, you know, having different roles, you know, what, what is it? Why do I feel so connected with some people? And I, and I have to believe they are just part of that nuclear soul family that you've had many lives with my connection with Gary, you know, we've talked about that repeatedly, you know, that we have had many other lives together. And I see that with certain people in my life that it just seems like we are in a number of plays over and over again. And, and so when you say there's this period of adjustment, you know, that all of a sudden that makes perfect sense to me right. because we've been in multiple plays together. And, you know, I was, I was your father in the last play <laughs> and, and now I'm going to be, you know, something else. I'm going to be your niece or your nephew or, or or another relationship. I think that that is gives people the opportunity. And, and this is the, the bottom line for me, Jacob, and I want to get your take on it. But the bottom line for me is, if you can look at your family relationships, as being in a play where you have agreed to take on these roles, then I think your perspective changes so that you don't take it all so seriously about how they're not acting the way they should be acting. Does that make <laughs> yeah. sense to you? Well, it's a very Shakespearean concept, you know, life is a stage in the play. But I think we, sh we have to allow ourselves to play within the play. And certainly there's a lot of allegory and symbology of my near-death experience, you know, but one of the themes was, is that it was in a playground and I was a child. And you think of the statement that we are all just children in God's playground here to play, to enjoy, you know, to love, to nurture and take care of our brothers and to be our brothers and sisters keeper is true. Um, I think the issue that comes into play is when something happens, we get so warped up into it and we think that this incredibly painful experience is, is permanent. And so we have awareness of the difference of permanence and impermanence. We're able to handle it differently and engage with it. You know, it's kind of like as a therapist, when a client of mine from a lesser degree is going through something, it's kind of like a, a basic CB cognitive behavioral technique that, I, that I'll say, but I'll say, you know, is what we're going through hat? Is it horrible, awful, terrible? Or is it fad, frustrating, annoying, and disappointing, right? 
And so if we're able to have differentiations with what we identify as permanent or impermanent, we could change how we engage with it, you know, and that will have a totally new experience in our lives because there's a lot of power in identifying and uh, there's a lot of power in belief in, in, in the belief that we have within this life that we live. And I know that you live not that far away from where the late, great Dr. Albert Ellis roamed the earth and invented a psychotherapy that at one time was generating more PhD candidates than any other mode of therapy, an extraordinary man. And looking at cognitive behavioral therapy, rationally motive behavior mm -hmm. therapy, one of the gifts of that kind of therapy, a talk therapy, as it's commonly referred to these days, it has to do with detachment, it seems to me, Jacob, that if we detach so that we're not being run by our emotions, if we don't have a sense of grievance, for example, or unexpressed anger or grief that's running like a computer program in the background of our minds, you benefit from the detachment because you, you can look at an issue as a present moment phenomenon. It's going to go away. Our lives are temporary. But while you're detached, you're allowed to uh, the privilege, really, of thinking clearly and yeah. responding rather than reacting to people and life circumstances. I think that's one of the glories of what you do for a living. Right. We try to empower people to be the observer and not the absorber. Yeah, that's oh, like where the that. real change happens. You know, you want to and having this near death experience, I just knew that deep within myself was this eternal observer of life. In other words, there is a you beyond the you. There was a world beyond this world. There was a life beyond this life. So what we're experiencing on the surface has very little to do with the ultimate reality. And it really depends on how we see and view things. Um, and there's great freedom in what we interpret situations as. Because um, there's people who have had quite horrendous experiences, but they are able to have a different you know, set of outlook and people have had wonderful experiences, you know, and they're always fixating on, you know, what's not working. So, you know, life has very little to do with what happens to us, the majority of us with how we interpret or process it. I firmly believe that, you know. I've, I've told this story many a time. I'm, I'm sorry, I have to repeat it again. And it was one Mother's Day when the minister said, you have the perfect mother. Everyone in this room has the perfect mother. Mm. You either want to be exactly like her or you don't want to be like her at all. But you have mm. the perfect mother. And so your mother has trained you to either be like her or be nothing right. like her. Right. And, and I thought that was so great. I want to right. read a little bit uh, here again from your book. What should you do with family members who are abusive and cruel? Should you continue to embrace them and try to work things out? I would answer that each person has a different role and dynamic within an individual soul's journey. At times, learning to be empowered against another who is abusive can be a soul lesson or karmic tie for that soul who needs to integrate personal empowerment and courage to stand up to others. Love is not always singing kumbaya around the fire. Sometimes you have to love yourself more than another and leave a situation. I would say to go with what feels right within your core. And you talk about 
there's not one single answer. There's the soul's answer. And I think in our way of being brought up, we have to work things out. We have to work them out. We have to work them out. We have to stay. We have to work them out so that there's only one answer. And that is to keep putting the love on the situation so that it heals. But you say, you know, look to your soul and your soul is going to tell you to just keep pouring the love on the situation until it works out or walk away. Right. Walk away. And surrendering is not a weakness. Sometimes surrendering means saying yes to yourself and that voice within. You know, sometimes abandonment is ignoring that voice and thinking we're just fighting the good fight, but we're not listening to what is right in our path. And so the more we're able to really tune into that inner guidance, the GPS of our life, we're able to maneuver the chess pieces a little bit differently. You know, life presents the board differently in different stages. And the more that we're able to tap in to not only this voice, but this higher intelligence that we're all connected to, you know, the more that we could really be more in flow with life and stop questioning our every move and just kind of go with things. Um, but you're right, you know, with within abusive dynamics, there's often people just think it's all just bad. But, you know, someone can't necessarily abuse someone. They don't have capital. So they'll undo things. They'll, you know, they'll make up the world for you. They'll promise things for you. They'll keep on well, well, doing something that 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 causes you to keep on within the dynamic, you know, or, you know, it's a trauma to the brain where we just kind of shut down and we don't know how to engage with it. And so I think a lot of people, you know, really need to, you know, A, utilize the proper resources, but also listen to themselves and what's right with them. Because so many times we go through this life feeling unworthy, and then we'll attract more dynamics that see us see us that way. And I think we're, when we're worthy, we won't tolerate you know, someone who doesn't see us as as worthy. <laughs> I'm curious to know, Jacob, with having a multifaceted career as you do, mm-hmm. you mentioned earlier people on the spectrum. We're talking about the autism spectrum. Turns out it's not one discrete. Uh, call it a disorder, call it a condition, call it a set of characteristics, however you will define it. They they look at life differently, those folks. Mm. And it's a matter not just of degree, but of type. They're along the spectrum. What I'm curious to know, Jacob, is have you worked with people on the spectrum and wondered, how do I communicate with a person who sees life so uniquely from my own perspective, there's, it's almost like there's a, a, uh, a gorge that I can't right. cross. It's like looking across at somebody across the Grand Canyon. How do I get through to that person? Or how do I get them to understand my point of view when their brains seem to work radically different from normative reality in any given society? Yeah. Well, I think the term itself is, is a problematic because the term of disability takes right. away the true ability that they have. And I think we judge, we judge people on the spectrum or diagnosed on the spectrum from our lens. And so from our lens, it may look that way, but they could look us the same way, you know, but they don't, we're the ones who judge, they don't, you know, they could see us (laughs) as having limitations with, without the gifts that they have, you know, they have heightened sensories and, you know, just a lot of intuition, creativity, 
um, you know, very highly sensitive, but they're a lot more loving than most of us. So who's to say one's better than the other? I think it's just different. Uh, I think it really it's about meeting them where they're at. It's a key tenant of my profession where wherever someone's at, you want to meet them where they're at. And so, you know, I was working, I was once working in a school and a kid was sitting on the floor and the teacher's like, he doesn't want to sit in the chair. I'm not going to teach the kid. And I'm like, well, why don't you sit on the floor with him and, you know, be with him or have the other classmates join them. You know, sometimes we have to kind of bend and be flexible to enter their world instead of having them always, you know, accommodate to our world. I think that's real understanding. And the word understanding is not overstanding. You're not over the person, you know, standing. You are under the person. You're trying to understand them. You're looking up at them, not down at them, you know. So that's what understanding is really about. No. In our uh, final minutes here, I wanted to talk a little bit about the distinction that that you have made between living this life as Jacob Cooper, being on the other side in the spirit realm with the um, spirit beings around you and knowing somehow that the distinction may not be as big as we think that the experience of being in that place of unconditional love can be experienced here as well. A little bit of heaven on earth. And how do you create that? I don't know necessarily about creating it, because to me, creating means that it's something that's not there. It's more about embodying and, and remembering that part. You know, I don't think there's anyone, it, 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 you know, almost anyone who's, who's walked the earth, who knows the kingdom of heaven more than, you know, Jesus himself. And he says the kingdom of heaven is within, you know. And so I think having this near-death experience informed me that you could find all these great things thousands of miles away, but we're, you know, we could allow ourselves to turn inward to, to find those same, those same things as well. You know, in other words, there are people who search for God, you know, f through toil and try to find God thousands of miles away. And there's others who remember God and embody God in the lives that they live and how they live it. And so I think really the more that we're in touch with our inner higher self and the more that we allow that to play out, you know, that's when we really are cultivating heaven on earth because the higher self is infinitely connected to heaven we're coming from that you know gear right we're we're inseparable and we're, we're creating that that here so um you know it's not necessarily um i use the term creation but we're experiencing it we're sending it with ways we're embodying that part of ourselves you know into reality it's it's interesting when you make that connection with a stranger it, you know, it might be in a store or a restaurant or someplace, things are happening and on all of a sudden you come face to face with another human and you mm. see their divinity, you mm. see their, uh, their life, their struggles, not that you know it, but it's just a momentary glimpse right. and the two of you smile at one another, or you find you have some <laughs> right. common ground somewhere. Right. And and then you make that connection. And um, I, I had an experience of uh, yesterday interviewing two different people to get some work done. 
And the first one, there was no connection with. And the second one, there was a full connection with. And it was it was like night and day talking to right. two different people. And uh, and so in the second person, I could actually see their service, their integrity, their honesty, mm-hmm. their, uh, you know, wanting to serve and make things right. And I felt it. And uh, and I and I like to have those kinds of experiences. And I think I, I, I read somewhere in your book that you know, that's one way in which you can experience that love here and now. You don't have to wait until you get to heaven to have that experience. And and people respond to that oftentimes, not all the case, but I found people that I might have engaged with like one way, right? And then I saw them in a different way. It just was a totally flipped dynamic. You know, the energy was a lot more flowing. And I think really a lot of it is checking with ourselves. Are we coming from fully our human part? And sometimes that's needed. Are we seeing others through the windows of our soul and seeing their souls as well too, beyond the surface, beyond the human part? And so I think that's that's a beautiful thing though. We're able to see beyond some of the stuff and personalities could rub us the wrong way and optics and all these kind of things. But beyond that, there's a reservoir of beauty in in almost all things. Jacob Cooper, we have to do this again. There's so much. I mean, we always just scratch the surface with you. So we're going to have a lot of scratchy surfaces over the years when we have you join us. His latest book, The Wisdom of Jacob's Ladder. It's powerful. It's autobiographical, but it's filled with lessons applicable by anyone who takes a spiritual path in their life and takes it seriously. Jacob Cooper, thank you, sir, for joining us again. We must get together and we'll have... What is it? Two or three visits for him? Three today. Three today. Uh, three we'll today. Make it four. Four ch- on the way. Absolutely. It's a charm. Well, thank you. A, a true honor. Um, I couldn't thank you enough for having me on and all of your support for higher consciousness and the work that so many do. Thank Keep you. on keeping on, Jacob. Jacob Cooper, everybody. We will be back tomorrow, 10 a.m. Pacific, right here on AM 1150 and 1150kknw.com.